So we are in the seventh part of a series of sermons uh, that we are doing in the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is a book in the New Testament of the Bible that was written uh, by Paul, an amazing follower of Christ Jesus. When Christ Jesus takes hold of us, He gives us a new nature. He changes us inside out. And having given us a new nature, He places us in a new community. That's really the essence of this book of Ephesians, and which is why we titled the sermon series, New Nature, New Community. And so during the first six weeks of this sermon series, we primarily unpacked the new nature aspect of what Christ does in us. And now we're slowly moving into the new community aspect. And so this new community, or the local church, is designed by God to be a city on a hill. The local church is designed to be a community that shines the love of Christ to this world. No, the local church is not a perfect community. Uh, People do sin against each other, people do hurt each other, people do step on each other's toes. All that still does happen. But the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ is so rich so powerful and this healing is is so real in this community that it can still be a city on a hill and a beacon of hope to a broken and a divided world outside. So with that quick introduction to the series, allow me to read the passage we are looking at this morning. We worked our way through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. We're beginning with the fourth chapter. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the passage that we just read uh, is actually an exposition of another verse in the second chapter of Ephesians that we have looked at earlier. So allow me to read that out for us again. It'll come up for us on the screen as, screen as well. In Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this verse says that in Christ, we are being built together by the Holy Spirit to become a dwelling in which God lives. 
the passage we read earlier, the passage we're going to look at this morning, actually expounds to us by telling us how we are being built together. The first verse says we are being built together in Christ by the Holy Spirit to be a dwelling place for God. And the passage we're looking at this morning tells us how we are being built together. And the passage we read this morning gives us five ways in which we are being built together by the Holy Spirit into a place for God Himself to dwell. Five things. But before we go into the five things, allow me to just spend some time reflecting on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. In Christ, we are all being built together by the Holy Spirit to be a place where God dwells. This is a weighty sentence. Uh, the sentence invites us to pause and to, and to ponder. What does it really mean? Have you ever thought about it? What does it mean that we are being built together? And, and how is it that we are being built together that we become a dwelling place for God? What does it mean that as we are built together by the Spirit of God, we become a dwelling place for God? Oh, what does that really mean? Does it mean that when we come together like this on Sunday and we sing beautiful songs like the songs we sung this morning to Christ, that when we start singing, God comes and dwells in our midst? This is true. It's not complete, but this is true. So but if that's all there is to it, that every time we come together and sing, God comes and dwells, what happens when we go home? When each of us go to our own homes, where does God go? If his dwelling place is only when we come together as a Sunday church. Um, if God comes and dwells in us only when we gather like this on Sundays, then I guess God's decided to use a co-working space as well. <laughs> because that's that's what we barely need, right? That we work a co-working space. So God shows up just like people show up for a co-working space and then go back home. Is that all there is to it? So what does it really mean that we are being built together by the Holy Spirit to be a dwelling place for God? Here is what it means. How we relate with one another is the space where God dwells. How each of us relate to one another it is in the beauty of that space that God dwells. When we love one another, God dwells in the space of our love for one another. When we care for one another, God delights to dwell in the space of our care for one another. When we encourage one another, God delights to dwell in the space of our encouragement for one another. Even when we lovingly correct one another and help each other see our blind spots, God dwells in our loving correction of one another. When we weep with those who are weeping and when we rejoice with those who are rejoicing, God delights to dwell in our weeping and are rejoicing together. 
When we together eat, drink, laugh, work and live all of our life for the glory of God, God delights to dwell in our eating together, in our drinking together, in our laughing together, in our praying together and in our living with one another. Today after service when we gather to have lunch together, just as the early church would, God dwells in our feasting with one another. How we all relate to one another is the space in which God dwells. So the local church is so much more than just a Sunday event. Yes, it is a Sunday gathering, but so much more than that. The body of Christ, which is what we are, is so much more than the Sunday gathering. So this entire space in which we relate with one another in gospel love through the week is where God dwells. That's the full meaning of this verse. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And the passage we looked at this morning talks about five ways in which the Holy Spirit is building us together into a dwelling place where God lives. And these are the five values that build gospel community. Five values that build gospel community. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, Bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and unity. These are five ways in which the Holy Spirit is building us together into a dwelling place for God. And I want to spend a little bit of time uh, on each of these five values that build gospel. The first value that builds gospel community is humility. And this is a little challenging area. You know what's the biggest problem we all have with humility? We all find that humility is hard to enjoy. None of our hearts, I can assure you, are captivated by this desire to be humble. We live in a world where, where it is seen as outright stupid to be humble. And so the world is constantly discipling us to be people who, who brag about who we are and what we have done. How will you get what you deserve if you don't promote yourself and your work? That's what the world tells us. And, and so the world is unforgivingly and unrelentingly driving us to be boastful. The world is unforgiving in the way it drives us to be boastful. But Christ is lovingly calling us to be humble. And the hard truth is that the world doesn't have to work very hard to make us boastful. What only needs to pull a, a, a few strings here and there, that's it. And that's all that takes to get us 
bind up, to be proud and arrogant and self-sufficient instead of humble and dependent on God. And deep inside every one of us is a fierce drive for success and significance and, and, and pride. We don't feel the same way at all about humility. Let's face it. We are not the people whose imaginations are captured by this idea of Christ-like humility. Every one of our imaginations is, is fired up with this grand idea of our own selves. I can assure you, I don't want to be a humble, unknown pastor who gets all this reward when Christ comes back. That's not what drives me every day. And I'll admit it to, to, to my shame. No, I want to be a successful and well-known pastor. Just like every one of you have no desire whatsoever to be a humble professional, I have no desire to be a humble pastor. This is, this is to my shame. None of us fantasize about being humble. All our dreams are about being big and successful and significant. Having acknowledged that reality, let's consider this. Can you imagine, can you imagine what a community full of proud and selfishly ambitious people is going to look like? Everyone jostling with one another to go get ahead. This is not how the Holy Spirit is building us together to be a dwelling for God. The Holy Spirit is building us together to be a community of people who are humble, just like Christ. And it is in this space of our Christ-like humility to one another that God delights to dwell. Our humility individually and our humility in community is a good measure of how much and how well we have internalized the gospel. But how do we get our selfish and proud and stubborn hearts to yield to humility? And you know, one day the disciples were busy serving the poor and meeting all the needs of the community and praying and reading God's word. No, no, no. They did all that, but instead I'm talking about today is very different. So one day the disciples were just fighting, busy fighting among themselves as to who is the greatest of them all, of the twelve. We're talking about the people closest to Christ. Twelve closest to Christ. They were fighting among themselves as who is the greatest of them all. And Jesus responded to them in the most unimaginable way that's possible. Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus knowing where he came from and where he was going, removed his other garments, wrapped a towel around his waist, he took a basin, and he washed the feet of each of the disciples one by one, wiping their feet with the towel he had around his waist. When the disciples fought among themselves, who is the greatest? Jesus responded by washing their feet. The only way we can grow in humility is by seeing how Christ humbled himself in order to save us. 
This is what Christ did. This is how Christ lived. Is it any surprise that God delights to dwell in the gospel community where the members humble themselves to serve one another just as Christ did? And that's the first value. Humility builds gospel community. The next two ways in which the Holy Spirit is building us together into a place where God dwells is gentleness and patience. And the reason I'm talking about gentleness and patience together as we're talking about these uh, five values that build uh, a gospel uh, community. There's a reason I'm talking about these two together. Gentleness points to our propensity to sin against others. And patience reminds us of the propensity of others to sin against us. We are called to be gentle because we are likely, very likely, to be harsh with others. And we are called to be patient because others are very likely to anger us or hurt us. So gentleness and patience is a golden combination in gospel community. And God delights to dwell in a space in the space where each of us we are gentle and patient to one another. Why is the Bible calling us to be gentle? And the answer is a very simple one. God is calling us to be gentle because God knows we are not very likely to be gentle. Now imagine you have a teenage son and uh, this teenage son or daughter, uh, teenage child, uh, I'm not referring to my children. <laughs> Uh, these, you know, this, this teenage son or daughter, they want to go to a party with their friends and you let them go. And as the kid leaves, just before the kid leaves, you tell him or her, have fun, but be good. <laughs> Why would you tell the kid to be good? As a parent, you tell the kid to be good because you know that very likely he or she is going to be naughty. You know that. That's why you're telling the kid to be good. And similarly, God's calling us to be gentle. It just means that He knows we are not likely to be gentle with one another. We're quite likely to be harsh with one another. You know, this is so true in Indian culture. And I'll tell you how this plays out in most Indian culture. There are always exceptions. Uh, right? So please don't call me racist at the end of the sermon. And it's, it's true of all cultures, and there are always exceptions in Indian culture too, but in India it plays out very unique. In most Indian communities, most people are generally very uncomfortable in lovingly correcting others, or lovingly telling others that, that they are wrong. And even in the most intimate community of marriage, you'll be surprised at how much husbands and wives hesitate to speak the truth in love to one another. And in any community, whether it's a marriage or a church, people are going to make mistakes. People are going to wrong one another. People are going to tread on each other's toes. And in any gospel community, people are not going to be aware of their own blind spots. People are not going to be aware of how their own words or behavior or, 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 or actions or personality styles are going to offend or at least make others feel uncomfortable. So we need to tell one another, it's a two-way process, gently what has happened. 
but we don't. We lovingly tell one another maybe that one percent of the time. Just because we don't tell one another doesn't mean we are okay with our inside. That's where I'm going here. We don't tell one another, but we are seething inside. It builds up and it builds up and it builds up. The frustration builds up, the hurt builds up, the anger builds up, the bitterness builds up. And finally, when we actually say something, it's like a cyclone making a landfall. All the suppressed emotions just, just explore. And our correction is anything but loving and anything but gentle. You know, the Bible never says don't correct one another. The Bible assumes and includes loving correction as part of the package of love. How God loves us and how we are called to one another. The Bible says correct one another gently. Bible says, rebuke one another, gently, correct in love. Look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Or if you look at how Paul is instructing Timothy on how to be a good elder in the church, he says the good elder should correct his opponents with gentleness. So that's gentleness, the second value that builds gospel community. Let's look at patience now. The Bible's paradigm of patience is very different from our paradigm of patience. When we think of patience, we think of patience through the paradigm of time. Our Uber driver is late, we get impatient. Today's lunch, I hope, is not late. Even if it does late, get late, I hope you don't feel or your swiggy order is late and you get impatient. The internet is slow, we get impatient. So we tend to think and see patience through the paradigm of time. But the Bible does not see patience through the paradigm of time. Not only sees patience through the paradigm of time, the Bible sees patience in the context of sin. The Bible calls us to patience when people sin against us. Look at this verse from 1 Timothy. But I receive mercy, sin, that's why mercy is called for. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. See, God's response to our sin is patience. The Bible frames patience not in terms of time. It frames patience as our posture toward people who sin against us. The Greek word that's actually used for patience in, in the original scripts and the manuscripts of the New Testament is best understood by contrasting the word for patience with the opposite. And the opposite of the Greek word for patience is basically resentment, revenge, wrath, wrath. That's the meaning of patience, biblically, not time, but when people sit against us. You see, patience is not ignoring the sin of others against us. Patience does not mean we don't tell someone when he or she is sinning against us. Real gospel patience is lovingly and gently telling that person that they are sinning against us and then patiently waiting for them to change in God's grace. It means waiting 
means lovingly telling them, gently telling them, and waiting for God to change them. This means that we have to lovingly and gently tell one another many times over before any of us actually change. Could be a husband, could be a wife, could be a parent, could be a child, could be people in the church. And that is why patience is of extraordinary relevance in community. We are a community of imperfect people. We're all going to sin against one another and we're all going to take a long time to repent and to change. So we all need to be patient with one another in Christ Jesus. And God absolutely delights in the space in which we extend gospel patience towards one another. When someone in the church sins against us, we lovingly tell them, they listen and they still don't change. But you're still patient. You keep, we keep lovingly telling them, in that space of patience, God delights to dwell. That's the third value. Third value that builds gospel community. The fourth way the Holy Spirit, the fourth way the Holy Spirit is building us together into a dwelling place for God is a forbearance toward one another. Forbearance. Forbearance is one step higher than patience. Forbearance is a really long and, and an extended season of being patient with someone who is sitting against us. That's the meaning of marriage. <laughs> you get married to someone, you are signing up for forbearance. Nobody ever told singles that. When you're signing, when you take the vow, you're basically saying, "Are you signing up for a lifetime of you sinning against me?" I find great joy and delight to be with you in, in absolute intimacy as your spouse, so that you can sin against me for a lifetime. That's that's the meaning of marriage. If you're not signing up for that, even BTS style romance is not going to happen. <laughs> Now the K-pop, K-drama, nothing's going on. Marriage without forbearance is a disaster. For both sides. It, it's not just one side, it's, it's, it's both sides. So forbearance is patience extended for years on it. Imagine if God had to deal us, deal with every one of us in one day for all our sins. Let's say today is the day and God says, you've got to fix yourself today. Tomorrow you're going to see the real side of me. Where would we be? We need God in Christ to extend to us a lifetime of, of patience. I'm not going to stay too long on, on, on forbearance. We actually preached an entire sermon on that. That is what we'll be happy to send you uh, the link. Again, one caveat on forbearance. Again, this is very true of Indian culture. Um, culturally, we're wired to be people who don't like to name things. 
We don't like to acknowledge things. We don't want to deal with reality. So it's quite possible in a community, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's church, it's quite possible that people put up with the sin of others in denial. You know, we're too scared, it's too uncomfortable, it's too awkward, and we don't even want to acknowledge it, and that's very typical of men. We'd rather, you know, go play a sport than deal with deep emotional issues. Uh, and, and so we just bury things, we don't acknowledge it, and we continue living in denial for years on end. Excuse me, that is not forbearance. That is not forbearance. Uh, you can call it anything. I think the best thing to call it is denial. <coughs> That's not forbearance. Forbearance is aimingness. Forbearance is acknowledging it. Forbearance is seeing the ugliness of sin, but not hating the sinner for it. Forbearance is seeing it, naming it, acknowledging it, feeling the pain of it, gently telling them about it, patiently waiting for them to change for extended periods of time. Gentleness, patience, forbearance. The fifth way the Holy Spirit is building us together into a place where God dwells is in our unity with one another. And this is really simple. If we all grow in humility and patience and gentleness and forbearance, unity will flow naturally. And God absolutely delights to dwell in this space where His people are united with one another in Christ Jesus. Humility, patience, Gentleness, forbearance, and unity. These are the five values that builds gospel community. Let me close with one last thought from the second part of the passage we are looking at today. That's verse 4. And it simply says, I'm not going to read the full part, but I'm just going to read a phrase. It says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body. There is one body. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, He left heaven. God was all-powerful. God who created all things in this universe by His word. This God, this Son of God, Christ Jesus, made Himself utterly vulnerable in the form of an infant. And He was born out of a virgin's womb. And as a child, as he grew up as an adult, he was tempted in every way, just as you and I are, and yet he was without sin. At the end of living a perfect life, where he never did anything wrong, and he did every single good thing that was in his power to do, that every single good thing that he ought to have done, he did all that and more, and having lived a perfect life, deserving of every blessing of God, he took on the curse of every one of your sins and mine upon himself. And he died on the cross, bearing the just punishment of the Father for every one of your sins and mine. And he rose again from the dead, as we looked at last week. And when we believe in him, we have his power of resurrection residing in us by the Holy Spirit. This is the thought I want to close with. There is one body. 
Jesus did not live, die and rise again from the dead that we might remain individual people saved by grace. He lived, died and rose again from the dead that we might be one body by grace. The new nature that Christ gave us, this new nature is meant to be lived in the new community that Christ was placed in, the local church. The new nature cannot be seen in isolation. We are not called to live in our glorious new nature in Christ as individuals. We are meant to live the new nature that Christ has freely given us in the context of new community. And so we must not individualize our salvation too much. We must joyfully give ourselves to being and growing in the local church. After all, after all, how we all relate with one another is the space in which God dwells. Let us pray. Father, we worship you, Lord. Lord, we repent that each of us, myself first, each of us are fiercely individualistic people, Lord. We always put ourselves first before we put community. This is true of marriage, this is true of family, this is true of our workplace, and this is even true in your church. We put ourselves above others. And we repent, Lord. As we repent, we remember your patience, that even as we repent now, your patient waiting for us to change, changing us by the power of your grace. So Lord, become of a broken heart, become of a contrite spirit, change us, that together we might grow in a community that is full of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and unity, that in this relationship between us, God would dwell richly. So Lord, we yield ourselves, give ourselves to be built by your Holy Spirit in Christ to be a dwelling place where God dwells. Thank you Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.